Web3 with me is a discussion style podcast about the ins and outs of Web 3.0, hosted by Zach French, known as Off Edge in the verse. From crypto to NFTs, DAOs to DeFi, we cover the abstract philosophical promises and the new business models enabled in this new decentralized world. Subscribe on your favorite podcast platform or watch the show on YouTube. Thanks and enjoy. Zach French is a bar certified attorney and nothing expressed by Zach during Web3 with me shall be considered legal advice. All the opinions expressed by Zach and his guests are solely their own opinions. All content in Web3 with me is for informational purposes only. Zach and his podcast guests may maintain positions in the securities discussed during Web3 with me. Thanks so much for tuning in to Web3 with me. It is our mission here to educate, and we realize that some basics of Web3, like WTF is a digital wallet, might be helpful for you to know. We will be releasing a series of short videos on YouTube and Reels to help cover these high-level topics. We hope they're useful for us, and feel free to leave us feedback. My guest today is Colin Johnson, co-founder of Freeport.app. Freeport rethinks the relationship between collector, artwork, and community, offering fractionalized ownership of fine art and a proprietary museum built to display physical and digital art side by side. We actually get to see it in this episode. So if you get a chance, make sure you tune in on YouTube. Before founding Freeport, Colin was product marketing lead at Apple for Apple Cash and partner marketing lead at Amex. This was such a fun conversation, discussing how to grow your business and community and how Web3 has changed the landscape through a unique relationship between identity and ownership. LFG, baby. Let's start vibing. Zach French is a bar certified attorney and nothing expressed by Zach during Web3 with me shall be considered legal advice. All the opinions expressed by Zach and his guests are solely their own opinions. All content in Web3 with me is for informational purposes only. Zach and his podcast guests may maintain positions in the securities discussed during Web3 with me. Welcome to the show, Colin. Thank you, Zach. Great to be here. Great to see you again. Yeah, this is a uh, interesting episode as we're recording remote, but we happen to live uh, pretty darn close to each other. <laughs> very, very close to each other. I just passed Dancing Goats actually on the way here and, and almost got a coffee again. <laughs> That's funny. Yeah. And and on the wake of, um, of Web3 ATL as well, uh, which just took place over the past weekend. I uh, got to see a lot of the uh, Atlanta Blockchain Center individuals that I've been introduced to, but just seeing the the passion behind these Georgia Tech students and grads that are trying to make Atlanta a blockchain uh, mecca, if you will, uh, is, is super I'd love energizing. I see it. Yeah. Atlanta is the next Miami could be uh, could be the play here. Well, that's you know the guy who founded the Atlanta Blockchain Center, Marlon Williams, who has been instrumental in helping me find guests for the show and and all that. He was in Miami and he saw Miami in 2016, 2017, really start to embrace cryptocurrency. And he he often on the panel even that he spoke on at Web3 ATL talks about how we're kind of at that phase, right, where he feels like yeah. Atlanta is right there on the precipice. We've got a lot of dev talent here, which is unique. Um, uh, there's just not a lot of, even in non-blockchain world, non-Web3 world, there's not a lot of dev talent. So having Georgia Tech here and, and is a huge help. As, as someone who, who came from San Francisco and it was just like tech workers everywhere, I was concerned, I'll say that before coming to Atlanta, about sort of like what, what type of people might be here. But it turns out you're absolutely right. There's, there's certainly a thriving 
uh, tech community. And I'm personally excited to, to get a little bit more involved with it. Uh, it's because sometimes it's tough when you're starting a company or just running a company to get out there and actually meet people in person. I'm glad we were able to uh, a few weeks ago. But yeah, a lot more work to be done on that front. I mean, uh, so just for, for background for the audience here, uh, Colin came across one of my tweets uh, that was penned uh, in part of one of the, it was it was on why I had changed my name uh, from being uh, pseudonymous and off edge to Zach French. And as part of that, it had to do with my uh, integration into the local blockchain community. Uh, and that's how, how we, we met. Right. Like, I don't think you were directed to me by anybody else. Right. No, that's accurate. That's 100% yeah. accurate. So uh, that tweet where you said it would be worthwhile was, was certainly worthwhile. Well, we'll, we'll see. <laughs> D- depending on how the conversation goes. Yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> By the end. Uh, <laughs> no, man, it's a pleasure to have you on. I know you've got a really exciting uh, product that you are building uh, in Freeport. Uh, I can't wait to share with the audience. But the usual way that we start these conversations is by letting the audience get to know you. Colin, what makes Colin, Colin? I call it your founding story. So start wherever you'd like. Sure. Sure. Uh, so I'll give you a little bit of background on myself. So I, I mentioned I just moved to Atlanta from San Francisco, where I was for the past five years. So, so I was working at Apple. I managed product marketing for Apple Cash on the Apple Pay team. Uh, the story I like to tell about that period in my life is that I wrote a white paper, actually, while at Apple, saying these are the eight things that we should do in the crypto space. Got put on a research team there. Uh, which you know I shouldn't talk too much about, but there is you know a crypto research team that's going on there, uh, and we talked about a lot of the different things for a while, and I realized that we weren't going to act on it so much. So that's when I decided to get into Web three. But a little bit further background on myself: I'm actually from New Jersey. I worked in New York at American Express uh, before at Apple, and then I actually got recruited to move across the country. So Jersey boy at heart. Worked in New York, went out to California, did the tech thing. I've been into Web three for longer than my family would like me to have been in Web3. So I've always been that guy at kind of the family vacation who's saying, oh, you, sh- you should really look into Bitcoin or Ethereum. And in my defense, that's back when Ethereum was like 50 or 60 bucks. Uh, uh, they should have listened. So they totally should have <laughs> listened. Totally should have listened. But <laughs> honestly, the, the annoyance may not have been worth it for them either way. But uh, so I, I've always, always been into Web3. But weirdly, I was an English major. Uh, in college. So English and creative writing uh, is, is actually where I thought I would find myself. Um, but then I just sort of happened upon the tech world. I, I read the Bitcoin and the Ethereum white paper probably eight or nine years ago, and was just absolutely enamored with sort of uh, the mix of different capabilities that all came together at one point in time. And they seem to be super, super relevant capabilities relative to uh, you know what's going on in the world right now as well. So it's like such a strange coincidence to have all those things happen at once for them to make so much sense to me. Uh, and I just said, you know what, I need to, I need to do that. So uh, that's how I've kind of progressed over time into the Web3 space. That's interesting. So you were reading these white papers, uh, Ethereum near inception, uh, Bitcoin very shortly after inception uh, or publishing, I should say. Um, yep. what, what were your initial thoughts other than this is cool? Like what, what was it that made you start to advocate to your family to get involved uh, in cryptocurrency? Um, there's something so fundamental about something being trustless, right? So the fact that we as humans can write these series of abstractions into code that let us uh, delineate sort of negotiations or sort of delineate outcomes with other humans, that was just so striking to me. And, and that, being, um, that being capability that was decentralized, right, that also was not beholden to some, some authority saying that, yes, that code is accurate, 
like the combination of those two things, I guess, is what just made me think, oh shit, like there are so many different ways that that can be, that can be useful. And then I just immediately started thinking of like, oh man, this is going to cut out so many middlemen, right? Like you're just not going to need X, Y, or Z organizations. And those tend to be the organizations that like we kind of hate, right? Like banks, uh, you know, they, they, they do terrible things with fees. They're not efficient with money. You, like I've had friends try to wire me cash to sort of invest in Freeport and it takes many, many days. And it's like, there are so many other solutions for these things. Uh, and, you know, the decentralization element is just massive in my mind, right? And I don't think people intuitively understand, like most people who don't get crypto, um, it's probably because they don't intuitively understand why the combination of the different factors that are going on here are so powerful. And it's kind of complicated, to be frank, like, it is kind of complicated. And that's why you should read, read everyone should read these white papers, because they're, they're not that technical, and you can actually get into them and start to understand and to intuit why it's important that all these different elements of blockchain exist, um, rather than have someone just say like, oh, it's like an immutable ledger and it's decentralized and like all these other things. That doesn't make sense intuitively until you read sort of the fundamentals and you spend a little bit of time uh, experiencing it. That is interesting. I, I don't know if I've ever heard of someone recommending the white papers to get it better, but you, you, you could be right there. I mean, it's if, if, if you have, if you're, a, you know, a curious individual uh, and you're willing to take the time to, to actually read these white papers, maybe you can find a new way for people to overcome what seems like an insurmountable technical barrier to participate in the space. Because I think when I have people and they come to me and this, like I had, had someone that I'm advising on a, a Web two looking at Web three project, and he says to me, "Hey Zach." where's the beginner's course on this stuff? And I'm like, well, uh, where do you want to start? Do you have a specific area? Yeah. And I'm like, here's whiteboard crypto, you know? And and then I'll give you like, he's, he's a tech investor. So I, I shoot him some of my shows with like tech entrepreneurs like yourself with investors, um, <laughs> with marketers so that you can kind of speak the same. You're still speaking a similar language then, right? Like, yeah, like, a, a lot of the videos that I've produced outside of this show have been around like, what is a digital wallet? <laughs> what What is yeah. an NFT, right? And like, that's a good way to start. Um, but like to really go deep into a certain area, maybe instead of like picking one thing, getting a definition and going down the rabbit hole, it's like, let me take a step back and see the white paper that these were founded on. Um, cause it's, it they're seems like, bad. yeah, they're, they're not that bad. And by the way, our, our approach to getting new people on the team up to speed in the crypto realm is we, we have this deck that was apparently prepared by someone at a VC firm, someone young and new at the VC firm to teach the older folks at the VC or the VC firm what crypto is. And it's actually a really good sort of introductory, um, introductory package. I can't recall the title of it right now. And I might not. Like it could be the case that I'm not supposed to have it also. So, but it has been super, super useful uh, at sort of explaining like whatever the startup or the, the uh, young person did at a VC firm to explain to the elderly folk. It's yeah. uh, it's super effective. Yeah. I've, I've found if, if, if I'm in a conversation, then the easiest thing to do is just figure out what the person is interested in and try to explain it in those terms by analogy. 
right? Yeah. I think most people know what a spreadsheet is. That's a, that's one that I use all the time. And so yep. like going through and explaining, like imagine if you had to have uh, everybody at your in your department approve every entry on the spreadsheet, right? Like that kind of explains nodes, right? In a way. Yeah. Um, so yeah. like, yeah, yeah, it's, a, it's, it's, it's an interesting thing. I mean, it's, it's a big focus of the show is like uh, a lot of people aren't participating because the autonomy doesn't matter enough to them to learn the technical and the safety side. Um, But there's a balance, right? There, there is a a flywheel of, of ownership uh, and autonomy that can start to generate new value in your life that you didn't even know you needed nor had uh, once you get going. So, okay. So let's fast forward. You've read the white papers. You're working at very large companies uh, like Amex and Apple. What, are your main kind of takeaways from working on products in those large companies as you set on your uh, route to start Freeport? Um, well, my takeaways from those companies are that they tend to move very slowly. Uh, I don't think that's going to be a surprise to anyone. Uh, they're very, very risk averse. Once you're doing incredibly well, you see what happens. Like management teams that don't have significant stake in the companies that they're running tends to be very risk averse. Right. And, and that is certainly the case. Now, I will say Apple has done an incredible job of keeping some element of um, curiosity alive and like incredibly high standards and um, consistently pushing forward uh, in ways that are not necessarily risky, but that are certainly different from like, you know, at Amex, which is not, not a knock on Amex because that was a fantastic place to work as well. But anyways, they're massive ships and like yeah. they steer very, very uh, slowly. But uh, what they do very, very well is they understand what the customer wants to hear, right? So so you just mentioned crypto. This is a great example. Um, well, mentioned crypto. I think you probably do that a lot in these podcasts. But we're talking once about in a while. And why, why, <laughs> why, it's, why it's difficult to, to get people on board. And oftentimes what we'll do is say, well, look, there are six to seven different elements of crypto. I need to teach you all of these things. And our perspective there is, well, I want this person to know this thing. Therefore, I'm going to go through and explain them the thing that I want them to know, as opposed to thinking from the perspective of the consumer or the person on the other end who will want to learn certain things more than others, right? Who will who'll just be more inclined, more curious about certain elements. So when you look at an Amex or an Apple, they're very, very aware of the things that work and that customers are sort of looking for that, that'll make customers um, sort of aspire to own their their products, right? As opposed to saying, Hey, you need this incredibly fast phone, uh, which which would be one approach that Apple could take. Or instead of Coca Cola saying, "Hey, we use fifty percent more of this ingredient," you're seeing advertisements wherein people are living like in the lap of luxury and drinking a Coke, right? Or where they're using uh, their iPad and they're dancing around with headphones in and doing backflips. So, so they're they're understanding that the customer on the other end wants certain things, and humans aspire to certain things and have different incentives. So it's a re- it was a really good place to sort of foster that understanding of uh, looking at the perspective of the customer and not trying to have them learn what you want them to learn, but making sure that you feed them the things that will will actually convert uh, in their minds. Hopefully that makes a little bit of sense. No, I mean, when I hear that, I hear uh, empathy. I hear uh, someone selling a feature, which is maybe this idea of our phone's 50% faster versus someone's selling a solution, right? Which is, hey, we got you got an app store in your pocket and you can do anything you want with it, 
right? Yeah. It's a, it's a total, it's a, it's a, you're, you're, you're creating a connection with your customers because you're aligning what your product with something that they see as improving their life in some way. Right. And we get caught up in web three so much in like the people who came to web three first are a little bit nerdy, right? Who, who care about like, they're intellectually curious about the technology itself. And they want other people to share that intellectual curiosity about the technology that they're working on. So you'll see a lot of web three platforms that are like really proud of uh, their interfaces because the interfaces reveal some of the underpinnings of like what staking looks like or swapping looks like, or, or they, you know, they're visualizing these liquidity pools, for instance, and for the vast majority of people that we want to get into Web3, showing them those inner workings is just, it's not going to be the thing that actually converts them, right? Like that's, there's a very specific, excuse me, specific population of people that are extremely curious about that. And even though I was an English major, I am extremely curious about that, but a lot of people aren't, right? Um, so I think it's going to be really useful for, for folks in Web3 to sort of look towards the examples of companies like Amex and Apple, and not just become super corporate. Like we should, we should push that off for for as long as we possibly can. But to understand, okay, this is what people actually care about. Like this is what someone is going to incentivize someone to start using this product, and it's likely not to be the lines of code um, or, or anything near the lines of code. Yeah, no, I mean that's it. It it brings me back to an example I've been using a lot lately uh, that I heard in uh, listening to Roham, the, the founder of Dapper Labs, speak, which is that you want to create a product in a way that abstracts away the technology. But if someone is curious, letting them peel back the layers still too. Yeah, right? definitely. Def and the nice thing is that that's always there in crypto, right? Like you, you can always go on Etherscan and see what the hell is happening as long as they're actually like legitimate contract addresses. Um, and I, there are certainly, to be clear, there are certainly elements of crypto that are worth elevating, or like elements of the technology that are, that are worth elevating. It shouldn't just be like, hey, you get this new thing. Um, but I would say the vast majority of Web3 projects uh, and the ones that I've sort of been playing around with for, you know, since DeFi summer happened a couple of years ago um, have not tried to abstract some of those things away. Uh, no. I mean, it's, it, I mean, like you, you mentioned at the beginning of, of your statement was, it was in when, whenever there's new technology, it is the developers, the technical minded people that lead the way because they have to build it, right? Like we need someone to build it. Uh, so the early remnants of that technology are always going to be technically minded. They're going to be rooted in, you know, figuring out how it works and like all this stuff. And like even me, who's been spending a lot of time in this space and talking to a lot of people, like some of the stuff is just still over my head, frankly. Um, oh, yeah. But, Don't ask me about ZK rollups. Yeah, like, exactly. <laughs> I, I just missed that session at Web3 ATL. Uh, <laughs> but like it, 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 at a certain point, if if you would like, and this this is you know up to the, the individual, if you would like to see Web3 sustain itself as the third iteration of the internet, which is pretty much what it is meant to be, um, it's going to require... Uh, a simplification, a better UX, UI, better software, changing the way that we talk about it so that it's not so technical. Yeah, no, I think that's absolutely right. That's one of the things we're, um, we're looking to do with Freeport, actually, is to sort of to figure out all of the, the, the different places where it becomes hard to interact with Web3 and just kind of abstract those away, right? So things like setting up a wallet, things like waiting for transactions, um, 
just figuring out how like Magic Link does a really good job of wallet setup, for instance. And a new company that we spoke with yesterday, Wally, is, is doing something similar where you just add your email address, they generate an Ethereum address on the back end, uh, they tie it to that email, and then you basically two-factor authentication, get these messages pinged to your um, your your email account, and then that's how you log in, right? And you don't need to go through the sort of MetaMask setup, have this plug in your browser. Like imagine explaining to your grandmother you know, how MetaMask works versus, well, hey, just put in your email address here and we'll create the thing that you need on the back end. Um, and, you know, there's a trade-off to some degree. It's like, okay, all the customization, like the the, the true feeling of ownership might not be um, as pure, let's just say, as it is with something like like MetaMask. Um, but it's sort of, we need that, right? Like we need to be bolstering blockchain with more users, we need to be bolstering blockchain with more value because at the end of the day, the goal is to get as much value on chain as possible, right? Because then we're more efficient as humans. So like ultimate goal is maximum human efficiency when we're, when we're transferring value around. And the way to do that is to put as much value on chain as we can. And we can't do that with just like a couple million uh, smart tech folk. Yeah. Although we've done a pretty good job so far. Uh, yeah, I'd, I'd venture to say we're not even at a couple million yet. Um, although it doesn't yeah. seem like that in our world. Um, so it's a good segue. Um, because I'd love for you to share with the audience uh, what is Freeport. What what are you what are you building and why are you building it? Sure, Freeport is you can think of it as the Museum of Atlantis out in the middle of the ocean that allows anyone to come and own pieces of artwork that have been fractionalized and tokenized for sale. Um, so if you're familiar with Masterworks, and I'm going to try not to use this comparison too frequently here, but if you're familiar with Masterworks, they effectively allow you to buy a small piece of an incredibly rare or expensive painting. Um, but they're doing it off-chain and that they're not doing it in a very visually stimulating way. What we're doing is is something very similar for those who are familiar. And we're taking these paintings, uh, we're sourcing them from an incredible collection. It's actually uh, the first ones, I guess I can, I can say this now, are coming from Jane Holzer, uh, who is a Warhol superstar in her younger years. And she has her own collection of Warhols. She has Warhols of herself hanging in her house, uh, which are absolutely incredible, worth millions Mine's of dollars. Mine's behind me. You can't see it because of the green screen. <laughs> very sneaky very subtle very subtle yeah, approach right, to owning a world right. uh so so we've got so we have access to this incredible artwork and for those who who aren't aware who are listening to this right now there's a lot of crossover between sort of the legacy art world and the nft world there are some people who in the legacy art world hate nfts there are some people in the nft world who are only like only about digitally provenance goods and won't even talk about physical artwork and then there are some people who are in between right but there's this large push in the art world, or at least there's this large understanding in the art world that something like almost cataclysmic is happening. Maybe not cataclysmic, but earth shattering is happening uh, to the art like industry generally by virtue of a lot of dollars going towards NFTs, because this is the new art form. Uh, they're going to be historically relevant NFT collections, although I would argue that maybe not as many as people as people think. Uh, but people in the art world see this, right? So this transition is happening. They're like, oh, shit. We're supposed to be the cool counterculture kids on the block, but now these other cool counterculture kids are doing something with a new technology and they're completely disrupting art. How do we become part of that? Like, how do we, how do we bring what we have in the sort of legacy art collecting world on chain? Um, and there haven't been good solutions historically, right? So you'll see people sort of mint NFTs that are separate from the physical artwork and say, well, now that the NFT has the value, even though the artwork physically lives somewhere else, or they'll, they'll try to donate the artwork to nonprofits. Um, and by, and I'm fully in support of donating to nonprofits, by the way, but then they'll claim that the value of the artwork lives on in tokens or an NFT. What we're doing at Freeport is much more fundamental to the moment of commerce. So what we're saying is, yeah, there's a physical piece of artwork. We're going to take that artwork. 
we're going to take care of it. We're going to insure it. We're going to make sure that it's uh, it's properly stored and that it's qualified uh, by the SEC. So we're following all of the regulations that that the SEC would require, which makes it a much more difficult task on our end. But at the end of the day, the tokens that people are buying and their exposure to the artwork uh, will be on the Ethereum blockchain, and they will have gone through this uh, incredible vetting process such that the value that we're bringing on chain, you can be sure, is actually representative of the asset off-chain. Um, so that's that's the f- like a fundamental underlying value proposition is exposure to fine art that's been tokenized, but real exposure, not some sort of convoluted sort of mental gymnastics exposure. Um, but that's that's like that's the least sexy part. Then we're also building this front end so that you have a gallery where you can collect all this fine art. And we're starting with Warhols, but there are going to be all kinds of other artists that we bring on onto the platform uh, and ideally living artists over time as well. But you can then merge that art. So you own your tokenized Warhol. You'll be able to see that visually. And right next to it, you can have your board ape or your moonbird, moonbird or your Azuki or, or whatever else you're, uh, you're into. Do you want, do you, can you show the, the audience? If you, uh, if you, yeah, yeah, let's do it. Why not? Um, yeah. We've been let's... keeping this somewhat private, but uh, let's just do it. It'll be fun. Um, so, okay, we're going to be launching this demo in December. Uh, and the demo, we won't be selling fine art until the spring of next year. So, so what, what we're looking at here, perfect, is, is Freeport, right? So this is the actual location. This is why I discussed it as sort of being Atlantis's art museum where everyone can come in and buy a piece. Um, the idea is for this to be an incredibly futuristic feeling place uh, where people can come in and access these pieces of artwork and be able to navigate around here that they never would have been able to access otherwise, right? And the reason that we we actually called it Freeport is because we've got these legacy facilities called Freeports where people, only the uber rich really, they go and they buy and sell artwork and they do it there because they're tax advantaged locations. So you can imagine selling pieces of art and not having to pay tax on that sale being uh, very lucrative, especially when you're looking at items that sell for upwards of 10, 20, 50 million dollars, right? So what we're doing is we're subverting the idea of a legacy Freeport and we're bringing people to this futuristic island where they can buy pieces of fine art and then display it and have it all happen on chain, right? So again, this is really, really early, but we'll just click through a little bit here. You can see some of the Warhols on the back for, wall. For the audience that is is looking, we're, we're looking at Warhols, we're looking at Fidenzas, we're looking at uh, Azukis, yeah. we're looking at uh, right next to each other, right? Like some of the grails, as we call them in the NFT space, right next to some of the pop art icons. Uh, it's in a beautiful facility uh, that you can even see some of the reflections from the windows. It really feels like you're there. We've got the God rays coming in, so the, the sort of light beams. I, I will not admit to you how long we spent discussing like how thick the light beams should be and like, how much <laughs> they, should, they should interrupt the, the view of the actual So are God back. rays a uh, term of art? In- <laughs> they, they're, they're an actual – it's an actual thing. Like if you go into the settings, we're working with these incredible, incredible designers. That's all custom done. So it's not like an on-cyber white label or anything like that. We wanted it to be extremely high fidelity because if you're – pulling warhols into this realm you kind of have to do do them justice right um so we made sure that everything was just done like perfectly to the t and that's all happening in browser we don't need it to be in an app that's the other incredible part is it can work on all different types of phones um relatively older phones as well so but that's that's the fun part right is okay so you have the actual ownership and this is why i love crypto by the way because you've got like potential financial upside um 
And when we think about artwork, I, I can't make any declarations about how well it's going to do, but you can look historically at how artwork has done over the past 20 years. You can look at how Warhols have done over the past, even the past 30 or so Warhols that have sold, have sold on average at around 212% of their pre-auction estimate uh, when they went to auction. So they're doing very, very well and historically have done very, very well, especially in down markets. But crypto gives us the ability to have financial exposure to things and then also to add the sort of fun front end element, right? That's that's what blockchain does. It's this, this permanent uh, ledger that owns the value or that represents the value that feels very different than owning something that's that's off of the chain. But then it also allows you to have these digital interactions because you can tie your wallet, your ownership in with the, the type of screen that I was just showing there. Um, so it's important to us that people can collect the artwork, that they can see it there in their gallery, that they can connect their other NFTs to the gallery and merge these two worlds together so that everything you do from an art collecting perspective on chain can be in one place. Um, and that's really our differentiator is that we're doing it with physical art and we're bringing that ownership on chain and we're visualizing it. We are doing some other fun things. I don't want to overpromise right now because we'll see how many are actually live for the demo, but you can imagine having scoring, sharing, um, potentially liking and some other elements that make it a much more engaging experience than if you were to just go, uh, say, invest in fine art elsewhere, right? So, um, and I'll shut up for a second or I'll shut up in a second, but one of the other places you can go to buy tokens like this is um, you can go to like Securitize or INX or these other places that sell what, we're, what we call secure, security tokens. And what you do, that, and they do fantastic things, but what you do there is you basically say, okay, I'm going to buy a token that represents ownership in a real estate trust or that represents owner ownership in a piece of art. And then that's it. You just have a token and it's just there on the exchange and you can sort of watch the charts go up and down. And that's that's all there is to it. We think that that, that takes away so much from all the potential that blockchain allows for, right? From a visualization perspective, from... Uh, you know, having it be available on different types of platforms or allowing other platforms to recognize your ownership of this fine art. Um, and we want to bring all that to life, right? We don't want to just say it's on chain because, hey, now it's on chain. We want to allow for all the utility that comes with these assets being on chain um, to be sort of experienced by our customers. Yeah, that's there's a lot to unpack there. And and I, I just <laughs> felt like this word was on the tip of your tongue as you're describing it. But like, as you talked about the features that, that may or may not come by the time of the demo and maybe some of the aspects of uh, blockchain and Web3 that aren't necessarily captured in tokenized equities, um, you you miss community, right? Like everybody is scared to use that word now. It's the buzzword, what have you. But that is the like underpinning like philosophy behind Web3. And a lot of the ways that we talk about Web3 is that because the community has this ownership stake, you start to see blurred lines between community and brands, right? Yeah. yeah. So to, to that point, I, I fully fundamentally agree with that, right? So part of the reason that tokens are so useful is that it indicates that someone else, even like on the other side of the planet, has skin in the game uh, in the same cause or for the same cause that I'm interested in. Right. So like uh, that can be an NFT. It can be different types of tokens that you hold for, on protocols that hold certain beliefs. Right. So um, I don't know if you and I spoke about this previously, but you have examples like Klima, where if you purchase Klima tokens, you know, carbon credits will, will be retired. And I, I know there is some question about the, the quality of the carbon credits in Klima right now. But the fundamental understanding is there. Right. If someone else owns these Klima tokens, well, they care about the environment, too. Like maybe maybe to some degree they're just speculating. But. Um, but you can see that people care about the same thing as you. And it's not just 
sort of a participation trophy. It's like, oh, you see that it's been purchased and there's value to that sort of community that you're part of. And, and that's another element that I absolutely agree with. Um, and that's part of the reason, by the way, that we're going to allow for sharing of these different collections, right? And you already see that a little bit with, you know, on cyber and spatial and some of these other places where people create their, their own galleries to display NFTs. Um, but you haven't seen that yet with fine art. Uh, and, and that's what we're looking to change. I mean, it's, it's, it, it brings me back to this, this idea of the uh, ownership identity flywheel, something I've coined myself. Um, Love it. Know, no, no one's ever said that. Uh, <laughs> and it's, it's, there is an intent uh, that you have when you own something. And there is also a desire within individuals to identify in some way, right? Some people show it through their clothes. Some people show it through uh, their actions, through what they do, who they associate with. Well, Web3 is an interesting place because it meshes the ability to own your identity in a way, right? And like what happens when those two start playing together in the art world sounds like a place where you're kind of focused, right? Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's hundred percent correct. I, and Farcaster is a good example of this, by the way, where, where they're doing this sort of semi-decentralized thing and they're allowing folks to come in and uh, use their NFTs as their profile picture and to verify, not for $8 a month, but for uh, <laughs> but just on the basis of the NFT. That's a jab at you, Elon. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Come back at me, Elon. Come on the web through the podcast and come back at me. Let's go. Uh, <laughs> no, but but I, that's, that's fundamentally right. You know what I mean? People want to be... Um, they want to show the things that they own and it's such a better way of doing it on chain than doing it off chain. There's just like, there's no comparison, right? If I go to um, masterworks, for instance, and I show you an investment that I have there, it's like, here, here he goes, Zach, here's my $15,000 investment and a little sort of square. And you know why I have that? Because this company just somewhere on their servers has a little line item on their ledger that says this person owns this thing. And like, that's the extent of my ownership there. Right. When you have a decentralized blockchain and you own something that's so representative of yourself, but you know it's going to be on this immutable ledger in perpetuity, it's just like an overwhelming feeling of fullness when it comes to owning something relative to that thing being sort of subject to whatever the whims of are the centralized party at some point in time. So it's partially people just wanting to do the thing they've always wanted to do, which is say like, hey, I'm cool and I'm doing relevant things and like I'd like to find other people that are, that are kind of like me on the one end, but then it's also the technology amplifying the, the like sort of like legitimacy of that feeling right on the back end. Um, and we're certainly like when, when people start to intuit that feeling who aren't yet into crypto, that's when we're really going to see the surge of, you know, everyone talks about the next hundred million people coming on chain. It's going to be when that feeling is felt universally. Um, and that's kind of our job, right. Is, is to get people to start feeling that. And, you know, maybe maybe reading the white paper isn't going to evoke all the emotions and we'll have to, to take one or two other steps. Yeah, no, I mean, I I'm with you. I I got into this world of Web3 through art. Right. I um, I was I was creating uh, you could call it fine art just because it's physical, but <laughs> it was it was an expression of my stress uh, during <laughs> during some tough times at work and was at a gallery. And my buddy said, hey, have you heard of NFTs? And I immediately moved to the uh, typical place that people that buy in do, which is uh, on, on the one hand, the, the, there was the investing side. But the, on the other hand, it was, wow, this stuff really encourages creative kind of disruption in a way, 
right? Where where oh, everybody yeah. can be them be their creative selves. You aren't beholden to ad campaigns or um, you know people liking your Instagram posts or, or or things like that. Like you can go out and create, and the market will tell you what it's worth. Right. Yeah. And and, yeah. and and if ETH is too big of a market for you, you can go to a smaller chain like Tezos. Right. Yeah. And which I consider probably the truest art chain, in my opinion. I think it's just full of true artists. Yeah. Um, I've, I've seen Te- Tezos is coming up, coming up, coming in hot these days, let's just say. Uh, and I, I want to learn more about that community. Um, yeah. I got no, some, I think, I got I some people you can meet. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> I got some big Tezos advocates on my side. In fact, I think one of them I already told you about for uh, for Art Basel. Oh yeah, so. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So there's like all this stuff going on. Like there's procedural art that's going on with things that are on chain too, right? So it's not just an image or like a, a pre-recorded um, video, but it's actually generating whatever the art is in real time, and it's like changing the HTML on the back end, like all from, based upon on chain algos. So it's like, that's the kind of thing that a standard artist wouldn't even begin to think about, right? Um, so, it, and we're just scratching the surface here. At the end of the day, we have these permanent receipts, right? They're permanent receipts. And then you just have all this white space to define why that matters as an artist, right? And you can find different ways for groups of people to engage with that thing. You can find different ways for it to be entirely unique based upon its interaction with the blockchain. You can find different ways to generate the art itself based upon lava, light, lava lamp-like elements, uh, uh, which I've also seen in the space. So it's just like, it's almost too much. I, like, I'm not going to say it's too much, but there's so much. I, I think what will happen is like all the tendrils will spread out. People will try all kinds of different things. And then like larger channels will be formed that people fall into over time because they, they see that it's resonating with people. But it is really just like, like the Elysian fields right now of, of art creation. Yeah, the... Uh... You start to find yourself, at least in, in for me, like the people that are collecting NFTs, right? Um, that that get into it for the art. Um, you start to see like factions or little digital societies forming around the the way the artist creates the art, what the art represents. Uh, and when I say that, I'm talking about Pack. I, I think he or they they use the medium better than I think any other person. A lot of the stuff you see where people are like, this is crypto art. It can do this. Check this out. Like most of that stuff packed it first. Uh, and, yeah. and there's just like such a, a beautiful journey for the collector to become a creator in a way with, or, or a, a destroyer uh, in certain aspects um, that I could just imagine you at Freeport and, you know, V2 or V3, coming in and creating the experience inside of a museum of collecting that art and how it's transformed over time and the different journeys you can make just by virtue of starting with uh, what may have been the, what was the first Sotheby's drop in the fungible uh, back in April, 2021. So I'm going on a tangent here because my my passion is coming out, but um, I'm I'm taking notes and look, that's, I mean, talking about it as sort of like the museum of Atlantis, there's a reason that, uh, and maybe that's an absurd, absurd claim, but, but the reason that I'm going museum is because there's such a, there is such a story to tell, right? And that's why museums are so useful is because you can see the progression over time of different elements within the artistic culture. If you look at, uh, even when, like when, when Warhol and Basquiat were doing all kinds of wacky stuff, let's just say between like the sixties and the eighties, um, there were these undercurrents of people who are sort of recognizing that as art at the time. Right. And they're like, 
And then there were others who were like, well, this is just complete nonsense, right? Like this, this isn't going to go anywhere. Pop art isn't going to be a thing. Like you're just making Campbell soup cans, get the hell out of here. Uh, but then it turned out to be a thing, right? So, and I imagine to your point, when there are these little factions, that there are going to be some that, that sort of stand up to the test of time that become artistically relevant for, um, for you know, incredibly long periods of time. Um, and I'm excited to see how that, how that ends up playing out, but it's a totally natural uh, occurrence within the artistic realm to have these, these subcurrents occurring. Um, there's just so many of them though. You got, it's like, I think just having your taste guide, you seems like the best approach. Well, that's to deciding I mean, where to buy it's it. It's always been the number one rule in collecting art, digital, physical, what have you is make sure you like the art, right? Like yeah. don't, don't <laughs> just buy it to see it like possibly go up in value or something like that. I mean, look, that should be a consideration. Uh, if you're, if you are an art collector, but like at the end of the day, if, especially in, in crypto art, right? Like if the, most of the stuff's going to go to zero, right? Like make sure you like the work, you know, (laughs) there will be a few, there will be a lot of new creators that are born out of this space. There already have been, um, but it's speculative. Uh, So we have yet to see what what happens in the long run, but I I can guarantee you this, the feeling of community and society uh, that some of these artists instill and, or they just create the space for you to try and instill those values in other people. Um, it's, it's pretty cool. I mean, it's, everybody's kind of unified around the idea that we can be stimulated creatively, uh, and, and organize in a way to, to do things, whether that's art drops or services or, you know, businesses, right. Um, Yep. And, you're all, and, 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 and the sole unification was the original art. That's it. Right. Yeah. So, so what does that mean going forward? I don't, I don't know, but I have a ima- I imagine you'll have your ear to the ground and we can have a whole separate customer discovery call. I can tell you the story that I'm referring to starting with this single cube uh, that I purchased from a Southern Sotheby's auction from pack in April, 2021. Um, so yeah. yeah, yeah so I'd that I would love to hear. I also, you know, I showed you the platform. I want to see some of that art that you mentioned before that where, where you said you're getting your stress out on the canvas. So uh, at some point in time, <laughs> if I could turn my camera to this way without screwing up all this crap and see in my basement, <laughs> I would 100% show you, but Hey, you live right down the street. So hey, you can come yeah. over sometime. Um, yeah, the, the, there's enough. another thing I wanted to unpack, um, it, in what you were saying. And one of the, one of the things that I've kind of that I'm diving deeper into as a result of this focus on changing the perspective of web three through marketing is that a lot of web three brands and web three strategies by non web three brands are trying to get their consumer user community member, insert word of human um, to come to them, right. To meet them Mm -hmm. where they are as opposed to what you talked about so eloquently when you were talking about Apple and what you were talking about with the, the art world in terms of being, uh, you know, kind of these counterculture and that alignment between the NFT art and or crypto art and, and the traditional art world, meeting the person, the collector, the user, the consumer where they are, right? Yep. How do yep. you think about that? Because I just, I see, I noticed that little bit of philosophical alignment between the traditional art world, but can you expand on that a little bit? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, let me start with this. Uh, like basic, so I think meeting the customer where they are is very much advertising oriented, right? Um, 
And if you ever want to read a really good book on advertising, just read advertising or advertising by Ogilvy or on advertising, whatever Ogilvy wrote, the founder of Ogilvy and Mother, like the, yeah. the go-to advertising firm. Um, but anyways, that's like meeting the consumer where they are is showing up in the different channels where, where sort of they already exist and trying to get their attention and tell them the story, um, you know, to the extent that you can. In the crypto space, it does feel like there's there's an ongoing search that's happening. And it's, it's, it's kind of creepy, but like there are these people that are part of different communities and they always have an eye out for whatever the next big thing is, right? There's, there's always this itch to figure out, okay, like I'm part of this community. What else is out there? Like what else is going? What's, what's the next like other sides, like Yuga Labs thing or what's the next, like, I don't know, Wagner United or like what, what's the next um, concept or notion that is going to be worth my attention? And I think in order to get people to come to you in this space, what you have to do is a have, have sort of a foundational thesis that is useful to the space or that is different or novel to the space. I think like Art, Art Gobblers was just launched by like the Rick and Morty founder or, or something like that. And it's really interesting. They're creating this whole gamification of being able to sort of like draw artwork that, that displays within the bellies of the gobblers and there are going to be multiple generations, all kinds of stuff. So being able to create something that is of value, that's novel, right? Right. To the user is, is incredibly important because there are these folks that are just searching for the next thing. And then they sort of want to carry their friends along with them when they find out what that next thing is. So I think it's really important to have a foundational thesis for what you're building because people can then either choose to disagree with it or to agree with it and say, oh, yeah, okay, I want to take part in that next new thing. And the best way to do that is to have things like, you know, white papers historically or light papers have, have been a good approach. We just have medium posts, for instance, talking about what I mentioned earlier, which is, hey, we should bring more value onto the blockchain. We should do it with real world assets because there's many trillions of dollars worth of real world assets and it's good for the blockchain to do this. Oh, and by the way, we can make the experience of ownership much, much better for people. And that's sort of like our foundational basis um, that we're hoping people will be attracted to, right? And that will say, oh yeah, I would like to collect this art. I would like to be able to get exposure to these, these things that exist in the real world, but to have that happen on chain and to have it happen in a visually compelling manner. And, you know, ideally we get found and people start to sort of bubble up the people who are searching for the next thing. And they say, oh yeah, that is something that's sort of worthy of my attention. And they tell a friend about it and they tell a friend about it. And, and that's the approach. But I think it does start with having a fundamental underlying either technology or approach, like philosophical approach that people can look at and say that's either novel or it's compelling or, you know, it could make me a lot of money, I guess, is, is the third option. Um, but that's how I think you get found. Now, then there are a bunch of little tricks along the way to make sure that you're uh, your message is getting out properly, right? Or, or that people can find it properly. Like you can do things to make yourself be found as opposed to just kind of crossing your fingers and hoping um, to, to sort of trigger that momentum, let's just say. But uh, yeah, that's that's kind of how I'd look at it. Yeah, that's that's interesting. There's, I mean, the, the words that came to mind when you were speaking at the end were growth hacking, right? Yeah. Um, f figuring out how to find people where they are. It's, it's something that I've actually had to spend a little bit of time with because as good as my content is, uh, there is way too much content to win solely based on content. So you have to spend a little bit of time understanding where your audience is, understanding the uh, mercy of these algorithms that, that yeah. you, you produce your content on in a way. Um, but the, one of the other things you touched on is a, a little bit deeper is um, you've got uh, these aspects of Web3 that are now villainized um, in a way. So financializing everything and doing all that. And I think 
the knee jerk reaction, myself included sometimes is, mm-hmm. oh, it should be about so much more than that and, and all that. And, and I'm not advocating that it shouldn't. Um, what I'm saying is that there's a level of embrace of these core characteristics of Web3 that people need to do in their Web3 brands. Otherwise, they're not Web3 brands, right? Yeah. Yeah, so yeah, like yeah. the fact that you can fr- own a fractional ownership of an asset that has traditionally performed well is a great aspect to have. But you also realize that there's more to Web3 than that. So you're building the communal aspect. You're building the idea that that someone can identify with these fine pieces of art that they would otherwise not have any access to other than maybe showing someone the website, uh, like you said, yeah. <laughs> with, with, with Masterworks, right? Like here's, here's my piece of paper up and to the right. It reminds me a lot of what I did with my NFTs at first, to be honest. Um, was I'd be like, Hey, look how much this is worth. Look at these offers I'm not taking, you know? And like, that that was about it. Right. You're bringing Um, back painful memories. Yeah, exactly. They they were painful, but they were necessary. We had to go through that. Uh, and, and for people to just be excited about the gains and not talking about the losses, myself included, um, and, and, you know, having moms buy in Uh, funny story with art gobbler. So Justin Roiland, uh, he created some work early on nifty gateway that was a like right around launch, right when I started in the space and, uh, my group that I was of like of friends that was buying art or just like dominated because it was, you know, all the traditional fundamental analysis that you would do about a founder and their track record and like, you know, all this stuff to, to see if an NFT is worth a lot just completely went to shit, frankly. Uh, his, his work was worth almost nothing. He couldn't sell it for a dollar. And then now that he has created art gobblers, yeah. I mean, all of a sudden it's taken it back to the oh, limelight. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and look, the art never changed. It's just, it's, it was about his ability to bring value back to, in a unique way, back to his holders, right? And at the time, you know, it was it was a, uh, I'm going to release more art world or I'm going to burn for a, a new art or I'm going to let you enter a, a, a drawing. But now you have this interactive aspect of it and it's breathing new life into someone that was a, a really good artist and had a good past. So I think that's really cool. You know, what's amazing is how quickly these currents change in, in, in the blockchain space. It's almost like you can go through evolutions at such rapid paces because of the nature of the technology, right? Because it's digital, because everything is so transparent, you can see how the values are fluctuating and people can immediately get impacted by that. That like you have the good things that that sort of bubble up to the top, but then so quickly the next the next big thing can bubble up and people can move from one to the next incredibly rapidly. Again, because the numbers are so transparent, you can get really excited about seeing the next collection that's up gone up 400%. Like maybe I can get in and it'll go up another 100%. And, and like, there's this, basically this testing of the waters that can happen and like the evolutions are necessarily going to happen more quickly. And I'm really curious to see, like, this hasn't been going on for that long, right? Like NFTs generally, I don't know. Like, yeah, there's yeah, what's from, like, a five year chart look like. That's what keeps popping into my head. What's a five year <laughs> yeah. chart for NFTs look like? If you, if you, if you start in t- mid 2020, which is really when they started to, to get yeah. produced on somewhat of a scale. And then 2021 is when they blew up. Yeah, um, but there are already that, like epochs within these like a couple of years. And that's insane, right? right? Like you've had like 
whatever art movements that take like 10 years, 20 years, 30, 40 years. And then it's like, okay, that was a movement. We, we can now define that as a movement. Well, now it's like, shit, that might've happened in, in a month. Like yeah. that. And it might've been relevant enough. It might've been large scale enough, but it's still like worth mentioning in the NFT art history space. And that's yeah. going to be a, a college course at some day in time. Uh, I'll will, put money on it right be, now, Zach. There'll, there'll, uh, be a, there'll be a glitch art course, I'm sure, based on yeah, X yeah, copies yeah, yeah. popularity uh, in, the, in the group <laughs> of artists that have risen under that style. I mean, yeah, like there's, that's gonna happen. There's, yeah. there's countless examples from the art world of artists whose work didn't sell for anything uh, until they died. And then they died and all of a sudden their works, you know, one big collector picks up their work and the rest is history, right? And it just yeah. keeps going up. Um, so, I mean, I think that's also a slippery slope uh, to say, because you could pretty much tag that to anything that's worthless now with a living artist. Um, <laughs> but, but, you know, it happens that you don't know the course you don't know the future, right? You don't know where this is going, uh, w which should take you back to the original point regarding art by the stuff you like, um, yeah. you know, and, yeah. and, and from artists that you like, for sure. Yeah. Um, oh, it'll be curious to see too what, I mean, a AI is having a massive moment in the sun right now, right? Between Stable Diffusion, Mid Journey and, and Dali. It'll be really interesting to see how, just how good that gets also. Yeah. Uh, and so far, a lot of the best art seems like it's uh, sort of, you know, amalgamation of human and, and AI or a lot of really interesting things that are coming out, or at least like algorithmically based artwork. Um, so as that gets better and better, like there may be some world in which, you know, there's so much art that's just so incredibly good. And we're just kind of sitting there and like all we'll really have to define its value is what other people are, are thinking and like it's sort of like the social interactions around it. And that in and of itself will almost be this, this own weird culture, um, of, def of sort of figuring out if AI art is valuable enough or if it's like AI plus, plus human art, or I, there's just so much advancement happening so rapidly. Um, it's going to be a wild time. I'd say the next 18 months are going to be some of the most insane. Yeah. I, I, when I think of an analogy, I think about the idea of money is, is just like a, a social exchange, right? The reason that you're willing to accept money is because you you think that that money has value right and i i am willing to pay for that value because i think that the other thing is worth a certain amount of money right and most of that in history has been backed by guns um but that's changing now right um and so you're starting to yeah. see money for what it what it really is from a fundamental level and you're starting to see art for what it is maybe from a fundamental level which is basically what people think of it right? Like what does the yeah. market think of it? What do humans think of it? And that's what art's worth, whether that's dollars, sentimental value, historical value, any of that, uh, it's going to, it's going to be determined by a large group of humans. Yeah. The next college class is crypto psychology. Yes. Yeah. If, if you're a master <laughs> in that, you'll probably be a very, very wealthy person. Oh, no, yeah, that'd uh -huh. be great. Well, um, we're, we're nearing the top of the hour and I've got my two traditional closing questions that I ask every guest. So, um, we'll go ahead and round it out. Uh, the great. first one is how do you describe web three, Colin? How do I describe web three? Wow. Um, it is the greener grass on the other side, but that we actually get to play in. I mean, it, it's, I, the way that I think about it is this, we, there's a new form of ownership and that doesn't really mean too much in and of itself until you experience the new form of ownership. There are a bunch of different offshoots and implications for ownership being different and being part of this sort of decentralized chain and this immutable chain 
that people are going to need to dive in and sort of experience different elements of it, of it themselves. But at the end of the day, I think what will come away feeling is that the things that they own on chain are of higher value, even if it's the same thing, but it's on chain, it will feel like it's of higher value because it's on chain and there will be a more emotionally fulfilling elements to that ownership. And then they're just broad sort of ripples that, that um, will impact the way that all humans interact with each other based upon that core element. Um, I'll try, I'll leave it there because too many things to say, but I think that's the one that's most important. Nice. Nice. Yeah. Um, the closing question is forward looking. Um, where do you see yourself and web three as an industry in the next six to 12 months? And where do you see yourself in web three in the next five to 10 years? There are more people building right now. Like if, if you go on Farcaster, and I'm a little bit of a Farcaster junkie now, uh, I, know. I, need, people... I need to get on there. I've had more people <laughs> tell me about it. <laughs> it's, just, it's a really, I mean, I'm really on, high. I shouldn't say I'm not, yeah. I'm, I'm 100% on Farcaster, but I have not given it the attention that I feel like a lot of people are saying it's warranted there. So anyways, go yeah. ahead. <laughs> yeah. There, there are just a lot of, a lot of high caliber, um, people there on, on Farcaster. Um, uh, but, but anyways, I think it's going to be very, very important to understand that there are people building things currently more than I've ever seen in a bear market. Right. And what that indicates to me is like, yes, prices are depressed and we're dealing with these global macroeconomic factors. But at the end of the day, this has web three has bitten into the mind space of all of this, not all the smartest people, but the vast majority of the smartest people in tech and, and development. And once people get into it, they're not leaving even in the face of a down market. So it's not going anywhere. And in the next you know, six months to 12 months, um, what I would expect is a continuous building of things that are of massive value. And as soon as the macroeconomic factors sort of fade. So, it, but, but the, I think the foundations are being built and they'll continue to be built over the next six to 12 months. And then there's going to be a massive, um, you know, once the, once the, the macro factors actually tone down a little bit and then things come back into the norm, there's just going to be this massive uh, growth uh, in the, in the web three space. As far as Freeport is concerned, you know, we're launching Q1 of next year. We're gonna. I do think that it matters. Like the, the date that you choose to launch should be cognizant of where the market is at at that point in time. So like we'll see exactly how it's feeling. Um, but I'm I'm relatively confident that by spring of next year we will be uh, we'll be selling out our first collection, ideally of of a couple million dollars worth of, of tokenized Warhols, um, and we'll be moving on to the next collection and then developing you know, a much larger experience within Freeport to the tune of what you were mentioning previously, having just this sort of massive museum that, um, you know, yeah, it starts with these, you know, very expensive pieces because they're hard to get, get access to, but you could imagine it growing out into something that's a much more comprehensive experience, um, reflecting upon the, the times that we were just discussing within like sort of the NFT art market. Um, so that's our immediate term goal in five to 10 years. I just think so much is going to change that it's, it's very difficult to, um, to predict. What I will definitely say, though, is our, our core purpose at Freeport, as I mentioned before, of bringing value onto blockchains will have occurred to a very, very large degree, right? If there's a trillion dollars on chain right now, there are something like $1,500 trillion of value off chain. Like We might be at a point where we're in you know, double digits percentage-wise in the next five to 10 years on-chain, maybe even more than that when people start to see like, oh shit, most of these things should be on-chain, not everything but most of these things. Um, and I think that's the goal to strive for, because again, at the end of the day, 
it just makes us more efficient as humans. If we can, if we can transfer value in, in a way that's sort of groundbreakingly efficient, right, then we're going to be able to get so much more done because we're not going to spend a bunch of time waiting for sort of intermediaries to do things. And we're going to have these incredibly fast revolutions within the space of identifying like, hey, what works as a value transfer mechanism? What doesn't work? Okay, this one worked during the DeFi summer. This one worked during NFTs. And, and that is going to rapidly accelerate. So I think we'll be bringing a lot more value on chain. We'll be seeing a lot of these evolutionary technological impacts. Uh, and the world is going to look fundamentally different by virtue of blockchain in five to 10 years, assuming we're, we're all alive at that point in time and we haven't had a nuclear war. Yeah, that, that, that would be a, a hope for that as well. And, and the other thing is just to round that out is what happens when the next generation is raised in an environment where all of this is just table stakes, right? Uh, and you're not having to convince people that things can go on chain and actually be more efficient. Like it's just how things are done. Um, so I think it's going to feel hollow. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Other forms of ownership are going to feel hollow. It's like, oh, some companies told you you own something, but it's not on chain. It's you still like, use a broker care. dealer? Like, what? what is a yeah. broker <laughs> dealer? Like, it's like, not even what? a thing anymore. <laughs> yeah, that's not even, it's sort of like, you know, our kids will probably also look back or maybe maybe grandkids and say, like, you guys use in, internal combustion engines. You were using a resource that was finite just, okay. just to sort of get around and everyone had one. Like, that's <laughs> it's going to seem insane. Uh, but, you know, it's good for them. We'll get to live in a better place. Well, cool, Colin. This has been a pleasure. Uh, I could honestly talk to you for hours. And if the market tolerated long form conversations, uh, longer <laughs> form conversations, uh, I would be. Um, so, you know, you'll have to come back, man. Um, I'm excited to see where you go with Freeport. Uh, I'll be following along the journey uh, with you. And uh, thanks for coming on. Thank you very, very, very much for having me. Uh, it, it's been an absolute pleasure. And I would love to come back and, and keep you sort of updated on the progress that we see at Freeport. And for people who want to check out Freeport, you can go to freeport.app right now and, and join the waitlist. Nice. Cool. Thanks. Thanks, Zach. Thanks for tuning in to Web3 with me. If you enjoyed the show and want to help us grow, please hit the subscribe button on YouTube or leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. If you want to connect with me personally, you can find me on Twitter at Zach underscore French underscore.